to the San Antonio Baptist Association Urban Missionary Training Center. Today we're talking about church planting movements. We're looking at a book that David Garrison wrote back in the late 90s and was published in 2000. We looked previously at universal elements of all church planting movements. Now we're looking at 10 common factors. These factors are found in the majority of church planting movements, but are not found in every one. We want to state from the outset that a church planting movement is a divine work from God. You can do all the right activities, you can do the right, use the right methods, say the right things, but it doesn't mean that you're going to experience a church planting movement. There are 10 common factors that are not universal, but are found in the majority of church planting movements. There are 10 universal elements that are found in every church planting movement, but these 10 seem to be present in the majority of church planting movements. These are 10 characteristics where God seems to be working and what He seems to be blessing. The first is worship in the heart language. This is so important, worship in the heart language. The heart language always emerges in the target group's songs, prayers, and sermon illustrations and applications. Worship in the heart language keeps the gospel within reach and participation available by all community members. By using the heart language, we are able to communicate the gospel and to draw people closer to Christ because they understand the message. This characteristic, this common factor, is vitally, vitally important. Evangelism has communal implications. Church planting movements typically rely on family and social connections which draw new believers into the community of faith. Church planting movements rely on relationships such as family relationships, neighbor relationships, friendships, work relationships. Those things in an oikos of a person are used to communicate the gospel. So it does have communal implications. Rapid incorporation of new converts into the life and ministry of the church. In most church planting movements, baptism is not delayed or lengthened or by lengthy discipleship requirements. New believers are immediately expected to become witnesses and disciplers of others. When a, someone comes to faith in Christ, they are followed up on immediately. They're not giving a book and said, I'll meet you in a week, read the book, and we'll talk about it. They're given something to do. For example, I knew as, when we were missionaries of several people that came faith to faith in Christ and their pastor would give them a, a short lesson on how to tell about their experience of coming to faith in Christ. He would give them a gospel track and send them to a bus station. Take five minutes, ten minutes, and go find somebody to share your faith with. That's immediate incorporation into the life of the church. Or someone was asked to bake cookies for the next children's group. 
Whatever the activity is, people are incorporated into the life of the church. They're not asked to come to church and sit on a bench for years before they're ever given the responsibility to teach. They're asked to reproduce themselves, to be witnesses from the very beginning, to lead somebody else to Christ and, and tell that person what you know. And then you continue to learn and then you continue to give. That is an in, invaluable part of church planting movements. We also have passion and fearlessness. Church planting movements are characterized by passion and urgency of salvation. New believers exhibit a boldness in the face of opposition. Boldness fuels church planting movements. When someone comes to faith in Christ, there is a passion about that new relationship, that new birth, that new salvation that they have experienced, and they are bold in sharing their faith. Opposition does come, and it, it seems to always come, but they are bold, and they're not going to shrink back from the new faith that they found in Christ. So boldness fuels church planting movements. There's a price to pay to become a Christian. How many times around the world does somebody face death or face persecution because they became a believer? Here in our country, we face very little opposition. Sometimes it seems to be growing day by day, but we seem to face very little opposition compared to what other believers around the world face. But there is a price to pay to become a Christian. That weeds out those who are not serious about their faith in Christ. Another common characteristic is there's perceived leadership crisis or spiritual vacuum in society. The removal of long-held symbols of stability and security prompts individuals to reconsider matters of eternal significance, meaning that is... If there is a crisis in the government or a crisis happening around the city or around the area that they live, it's affecting them and they are questioning what's happening in the future. This seems to create a void of security in which they seek out eternal answers. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to others? I remember living in Venezuela in late 1999. There was a massive flood of, after 14 days of continual rain. The mountain area that we lived in began to have mudslides. Boulders as big as buses came out of the mountain and destroyed whole cities. During that time of crisis, there was a crisis of security, crisis of wondering, why has this happened? Why is my neighbor gone and I'm still left? People begin to seek the Lord. They begin to be open as they never were before because of the crisis that they were going through. On the job training for church leadership, leaders are trained in their context on ministry skills, usually by short-term modules, which do not impede ongoing evangelism, church planting, and pastoral leadership. One of the things I appreciated about being a missionary was being able to do seminary by extension. That meant that I traveled distances to go out into areas where there were not schools, not a lot of churches, but pastors and church leaders would gather, receive Bible training, and then when they, they would go back to their context. 
I remember in one city teaching a series of classes. I would drive down on early Saturday morning. It would take me five hours one way to drive in to the city. People would come at nine o'clock, but they would have worked the full day, the full week prior. And on Friday at four o'clock, they would get on the bus and they would ride 16 hours from 4 p.m. to 8 a.m. They would ride 16 hours on the bus. They would get off, grab a bite to eat at a local uh, bakery. They would grab something to eat and they would come to the church to be trained. We would go from nine to three, six hours of training, providing lunch. At three o'clock, they would go to the restroom, gather their things and make it over to the bus station. They would get on the bus at four o'clock. They would ride 16 hours back home and get off the bus at 8 a.m. At 8 a.m., they would go to the bakery, get something to eat, and then they would go to church at nine o'clock in the morning and they would do Sunday school and they would preach in that service and then they would go home on Sunday afternoon. But they rode 32 hours in the bus for six hours of training. We didn't take them out of their local context. They didn't have to leave their job. They didn't have to do anything else, but they got training, the training that they needed to be better leaders and servants of Christ. Leadership authority is decentralized. Every house church leader has the authority to do whatever is necessary in terms of evangelism, ministry, and church planting without seeking approval from a church hierarchy. People are allowed to do what comes natural, meaning they're allowed to evangelize, to disciple, and to baptize, to hold the Lord's Supper, to do whatever a church does. Churches are considered churches because of the way they function. Local leaders have the authority to do everything that Scripture teaches. They don't have to check in with somebody who's going to hold their hand or give them permission to do what they're doing. They are in a system that is decentralized. Outsiders keep a low profile. Missionaries keep a low personal profile in order to minimize foreignness and encourage local ownership while drawing local believers into leadership roles. Missionaries are shadow missionaries, shadow disciplers. They disciple the local leaders who go out and do the work. Local leaders have the language, the culture, they're part of that indigenous people group or indigenous population segment, and they can do the work much better than an outsider. In order to, for it to stay within the culture and to be a lot more reproducible, missionaries train the leaders on the side. Missionaries suffer. Those whom God uses to help start church planting movements seem to suffer a higher price required to push back spiritual darkness. That takes place on the front as, as someone goes into a new area and begins to do gospel work. This, we saw this in the life of Paul. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, at the end, he goes through a list of things that he suffered. Those are things that he suffered because he was on the front edge of pushing back darkness. In other videos, we talk about some of those things that Paul suffered. 
But this is true among other missionaries. Satan will attack missionaries or those who God is using to get things started. Satan will attack them at their weakest point. Their weakest point might be physical, it might be emotional, it might be some other thing that would derail them from doing what God has called them to do. These common factors are not universal but are found in the majority of church planting movements. Thank you for watching this video, the San Antonio Baptist Association Urban Missionary Training Center. We have other videos. This video is in a series on church planting movements. We hope that you watch the other videos also.